Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The grootste partij van Nederland. No one predicted the scale of his success. Dutch far-right leader Hert Wilders scored a shocking victory in a snap general election in the Netherlands earlier this week. He's now poised to enter coalition talks with other parties and stands a chance of becoming the next Prime Minister. It marks a dramatic shift in Dutch politics, but it is also likely to have a huge impact at the European level. I'm Suzanne Lynch, host of EU Confidential. In this episode, we break down the results of this week's election in the Netherlands. Later, we have a fascinating discussion with David O'Sullivan, the EU sanctions envoy. His job is to make sure that there is as little circumvention as possible of the sanctions imposed on Russia by the EU over the war in Ukraine. It's a task that could soon prove even more difficult as the EU negotiates a 12th package of sanctions, including a ban on Russian diamonds. Also, make sure you stay with us till the end, as I do have some news I want to share with you. But first, to discuss the results of the Dutch general election, I'm joined by Alina Schart in The Hague, who's been covering this for us in Politico, and Nick Vinokur, Politico's editor-at-large. Hi there, guys. Hey, Suzanne. Hi, great to be here. So, Alina, okay, talk us through these really remarkable results. Dutch voters went to the polls on Wednesday. Talk us through the outcome. It's a big surprise for everyone here, including Geert Wilders, who's the big winner. For weeks, it seems to be quite a calm campaign with three parties sort of neck and neck trying to get the most seats. And then all of a sudden, about a week ago, Wilders had a big surge in public support and still no one expected such a big difference between him and the other parties. I'm in politics for 25 years now, and this is the happiest day um, of my life so far in politics. We became the number one party by far. I mean, it's what a lot of people, if you would have asked them a year ago, would call you uh, mad. And uh, it happened today. So I'm very proud. I'm very happy. And it, it, it brings along a lot of feeling of responsibility. Nick, we have just been discussing this, that Hert Filders has been around for a long time in EU politics. And it was almost like we'd, we'd forgotten about him. Nobody really saw him coming in this election. Absolutely. For me, he was kind of history. But what we've seen here is the power of a single issue. There's definitely, across Europe, huge concern about migration, security, and voters seem to have flocked to the original brand on migration, on civilizational issue in the Netherlands, is Herit Wilders most associated with that. 
And Alina, I mean, look, what happens now? Okay, his party got the most uh, seats in the parliament, but that by no means means that he is going to be the next prime minister. Yeah, that's a very good point. Traditionally, the biggest party will also provide the prime minister, but it's not sure that that will be the case in this scenario. So what will happen now is that the party leaders will come together on Friday and appoint together the person who will be in charge of leading these negotiations. That will be most probably someone that Geert Wilders has put forward. And that person will have a very complex task of trying to see if there is a possibility of having coalition with Wilders as the prime minister. And what are the likely coalition partners for Wilders' party? Most likely is Mark Rutte's party that is now being led by Dylan Jessicus. The party has had a big loss. They lost 10 seats, but they're still the most likely um, coalition party for Wilders, together with a new party from Peter Omzicht, conservative centrist party that has made a big win. They were just launched three months ago and they have secured 20 seats. Another person we've been following closely in Brussels is Franz Timmermans. He's been a big beast in the EU jungle, former EU commissioner, and he left the commission early to go and run for prime minister in in these elections. How did his party fare and where does this leave him? I mean, could he possibly be a kingmaker here? Could he possibly be the next Dutch prime minister? Yeah, it's a big disappointment for Timmermans, obviously. Although his party, a combined party of the Green and the Labour Party, has come in second with 25 seats, which is a jump from the combined seats that they have now currently in Parliament. It's a big disappointment for them, obviously. There is a scenario where Timmermans would still have a shot at becoming Prime Minister. That would be if Builders doesn't succeed in forming a government, and then the second party will be put in charge. However, that would be a nightmare scenario for Wilders. So he will try everything in his powers to prevent that. Tell us a bit more about Wilders' policies, particularly when it comes to Europe. Yeah, Wilders is a true Eurosceptic, you could say. He has been campaigning for a long time for a referendum here in the Netherlands to leave the EU, which is called Nexit. Important to note there, though, is that after Brexit and what we have seen has happened next there, public support for a Nexit is very low in the Netherlands. The latest poll I could find from earlier this year only put it at 13%. But even if there isn't going to be an exit, Wilders wants to lobby for more opt-outs for Nanellis when it comes to migration. He has said that he is against sending more weapons to Ukraine because he believes that the Nellis needs them itself. So it's definitely going to be a big change. And Nick, what's the reaction in Brussels? I mean, one of our stories this week was talking about this being the EU's biggest nightmare. I mean, what's likely to be the reaction? The reaction will be essentially fear, a fear of what's to come. We have the parliament election in less than a year's time. And essentially what we've got here is a huge signal of where voters' concerns lie. And you're going to have the national rally. The far-right party in France traditionally performs very well in the parliament election. And Wilders is is sort of very close to Marine Le Pen ideologically. And you could think, well, they're going to do really well. And you're going to end up with a strong, hard to far right block in the European Parliament. Big figures like, you know, Hert Wilders, Le Pen, Georgia Maloney, all sort of pulling on EU politics, uh, pulling things to the right. 
Yeah, I think it's been a real wake-up call. I mean, we've been speaking about this on the podcast. We've we've written about this surge in, in the right wing across Europe. And then when the Polish elections happened, there was a sense that, oh no, you know, the centrist parties there, the more centre-right party led by Tusk and his fellow coalition partners you know, won the day. And now there's been a kind of a, a jolt to the EU system that someone like Wilders, who's this checkered past, I mean, he's a, a fascinating character, that kind of shock of hair. Uh, there's something about these leaders with these uh, wild haircuts but that he's back and he has done so well on this. Yeah, and I would just make one more point. I mean, people say, you know, people point to Spain and say, well, you know, the left is now uh, has a new term in government. But actually, the party that won the most votes in the election was the Conservative Party. And the reason they're not in power is because they refuse to govern with Vox, with the far right. But in the European Parliament election, all that is going to be mixed together. All those right, centre-right and far-right votes are going to be mixed together to form a big block. Now, Alina, you were at the election night party with Wilders and co. What was it like? Give it a flavour of, of what the atmosphere was like there. Yeah, it was a strange atmosphere. The election night was in a small cafe in a beach town next to The Hague. An unlikely venue, I was told, was due to the party not really planning on having an election party up till three days prior to Wednesday because they didn't expect such a big surge. So it was a small cafe where there was one room for journalists that was very packed and then another room for the voters. We were not allowed to talk to the voters. So we were in our own room waiting for Wilders to arrive after the first exit polls. But still, of course, we could hear the cheering, we could see the joy of the people who were in the cafe. So Alina, what happens next? How long is this process going to take? I mean, what's been the reaction in the Netherlands? It's a shock reaction. No one expected this. And the expectations is is that it is going to take a long time. The last coalition talks in 2021 took a record of 299 days. I'm not sure it's going to be that long again this time, but it will not be easy. That's for sure. And interesting, as you say there, I mean, a real blow for Mark Rutte's party, who really did not perform well. Maybe just tell us a bit about their new leader and what this says about her political future. Yeah, that's a great question. Dylan Yesogas, she would have been the first female prime minister. She would have been the first prime minister who has come to the Netherlands as a refugee. So a lot of firsts, but at the same time, she is quite similar to Rutte. She's a self-confessed workaholic. She's very energetic, very media savvy, some traits that we also know from Rutte. But I think they will now be having fierce reflections on what went wrong. And I think a lot of fingers are pointed at Yesogus and her party for having opened the door early on in the campaign to Wilders for saying that they would not rule them out for any future coalitions. To return to Nick's point, I mean, she campaigned to a point on the migration issue. Housing was obviously a big issue in the Netherlands. This idea that migration is feeding into that, etc. Even though, as you say, she was born in Ankara herself, but yet it kind of maybe took up some of, of that ground. Alina, Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Coming up after a short break, I ask David O'Sullivan about his work at the EU Sanction Envoy and a special announcement from me. Stay with us. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm joined now by David O'Sullivan, who was appointed by European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen to take up a new role as EU's sanction envoy. He took up that role earlier this year. Now, Mr O'Sullivan has had a long and illustrious career within the EU, serving as Secretary General of the European Commission, effectively the Commission's most senior civil servant, also Head of DG Trade, the first Chief Operating Officer of the European External Action Service, and more recently, the EU's Ambassador to the United States. David O'Sullivan, delighted to have you on EU Confidential. Well, thank you for the invitation. First of all, could you tell us a bit more about the role you're doing now, EU Sanctions Envoy? What does this involve? Well, my main role is the outreach to third countries who are not aligned on our sanctions. As you know, we have the biggest and largest set of sanctions against Russia as a result of their unprovoked aggression in Ukraine, bigger and larger than anything we've ever had before. It's part of a broad international coalition, the G7+. And many countries have aligned, including many European countries, Switzerland, Norway. But of course, a number of countries have chosen not to align. And our concern is to avoid that any of these countries would become platforms for the evasion or the circumvention of our sanctions. So my role is to reach out to these countries and uh, have a dialogue with them on issues of concern and where possible to persuade them to avoid becoming such platforms. So we're talking about, you mentioned they're the broader European countries that are not in the EU. So also is this kind of Western Balkan countries right through to Central Asia? It is all countries that have not aligned. So they are you know, perhaps larger in number than we might originally have wished. But I mean, you certainly have Central Asia, you have the Caucasus, uh, you have two candidate countries who have chosen for different reasons not to align, Serbia and Turkey. And, for example, the UAE, which is another important trading partner, but who has also not aligned with our with our sanctions. So how do you go about convincing these countries to align with EU sanctions? I mean, why should they? Well, no, I'm, I'm, let me be clear, I'm not trying to convince them to align. My persuasive powers are perhaps considerable, but they don't extend to that. I think the first thing is that you have to be very respectful of the sovereignty of these countries and of the fact that each of them has chosen not to align for their own very good reasons, or as they see it, very good reasons. So I'm not there to try and change their minds, much though I might like to do so. I am there to point out examples of where we feel that 
perhaps they are being becoming platforms for circumvention. Because most of the time when you talk to these countries, they say, we don't want to align with your sanctions, but neither do we wish to be used as a platform for circumvention or to become a channel for the evasion of sanctions. And then my job is to present the statistical evidence that might show that that is happening and to discuss with them how we might deal with that situation. There have been instances where presumably there are spikes in activity. This is how the EU sees that there could be circumvention happening in these these non-EU countries. Indeed. I mean, our first list of countries was drawn up with a, a relatively crude but effective metric, which was exports which we previously sent in large quantities to Russia, now being exported in largish quantities to other countries and from those countries onwards to Russia. So we looked at the increase in trade between us and these third countries and any increase in their trade with Russia. And that basically gave us a first list of countries where we felt there was likely to be a problem. How do you rate your success so far? I mean, have you been having the impact you wanted to have? Look, uh, for others to judge, you know, my success rate, I think that we have been able, through dialogue with these countries, to address a particular issue of concern, which is a subset of our sanctioned products, which are those which are found in Russian military equipment. This is a, a list of some 45 tariff lines of stuff which the Ukrainian colleagues have found in the remains of Russian missiles, drones, uh, artillery shells, and so forth. These are goods which uh, largely would have an innocent civilian application in normal circumstances, but which we are convinced, once finding their way to Russia, go directly into the military-industrial complex and into weapons. And so we have been able to persuade a number of our partner countries to prevent the re-export of these products to Russia, even if they they find their way into those countries from from the EU or from elsewhere. So this has been the case for for Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Armenia, Serbia, and the UAE recently announced such a ban. We're also in discussions with Turkey, and we're hopeful that they too will find a way of making the re-export of these goods more difficult. So we've had, I think, a limited success, but in an area which is absolutely critical to the defense of Ukraine. Do you find that these other countries are coming under significant pressure from Moscow to not bend to EU requirements and demands? I think many of them are juggling complex political and geographical issues. They frequently are in close proximity to Russia. They may have traditional links with Russia. They may have migrant workers in large quantities who are in Russia. So yes, they have a range of contacts with Russia, which they don't want to disrupt unnecessarily. On the other hand, I think they are very committed to the idea that they do not wish to take sides, and they certainly don't wish to be seen as vehicles for the improvement of the Russian military machine. I mean, the EU is poised to agree a 12th round of sanctions and it has to date introduced 11 sanctions package. I mean, you've had a long career in the EU, as we said at the outset, you were head of DG Trade, you were involved in numerous trade negotiations, probably with Mr. Putin himself, I believe. How do you characterise the trade strategy of the European Union since this full-scale invasion by Russia? Has this been a high point for EU trade policy or is it straying into the realm of maybe too much politics when it comes to using trade as an instrument? Sanctions are, by definition, political and they are not (laughs) pro-trade. 
They are designed indeed to prevent trade and to use that for political purposes. The objective of these sanctions against Russia is threefold. Firstly, to deny Russia access to the technology needed to produce sophisticated military kit. Secondly, to deny the Russian government the revenue needed to fund this war over time. And thirdly, to impose a high cost generally on the Russian military industrial complex as a cost of you know, their unprovoked aggression and the very brutal war they are waging in Ukraine. I think across all those three objectives, we can show success and impact. And that is the purpose of the sanctions. This is an unprecedented situation. I've been, as you say, working around European affairs for a long time, longer than I care to remember sometimes. I never thought in my lifetime I would witness a war of this kind in Europe. It's unprecedented and it requires an unprecedented reaction. And I think that is what the EU, along with our international partners, has been able to deliver. And yet the Russian economy remains quite strong. I mean, how effective have these sanctions been in reality, particularly when you talk about oil caps and, and those kind of measures that the West has taken? Well, I'm an economist by training, though I've never really considered it the science that some economists would claim it is. And clearly, when you look at any given situation, you will get different views from economists. But I think if we look across the three objectives, Russia is struggling to find the technology it needs for military kit. Uh, they've turned to Iran and to North Korea. The revenue of the Russian government is down. They used traditionally ran a government surplus. They're currently in a serious deficit. And if you look at the performance of the, the Russian economy generally, it's very poor. Now, of course, there is a degree of growth because basically uh, what Mr. Putin has done is to put the Russian economy on a war footing. So he is cannibalizing the economy, taking money from the productive sector, whether that's education, social security, research, investment for economic purposes and putting it into the unproductive military sector. Now, of course, in those circumstances, you do get a certain boost of your economic activity, but it's not sustainable and it's not particularly healthy. And the analogy I like to use is that the sanctions are a sort of slow puncture of the Russian economy, perhaps not the blowout that some people initially predicted, but the fact remains the air is escaping from the tire and sooner or later the vehicle is going to become impossible to drive. I mean, as I mentioned, you you did negotiate with Russia before at other points in EU history. What's your assessment of, of Putin himself, having met him, having sat across the table from him? Look, I mean, I have had the privilege uh, of being in, in a number of high-level meetings with Russia in previous incarnations. I don't want to pass particular judgment on Mr. Putin or claim insights into his political objectives. What I think is a tragedy is that we, we did seek, after the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think we genuinely did reach out to Russia. We even had a program, Partnership for Modernization, which was actually making money available to help Russia modernize its economy. I think many of us genuinely hoped that Russia would become a modern European state with a thriving economy uh, from which we could all benefit. Unfortunately, Mr. Putin seems to have different ideas for what he wants for his country. And I'm not sure that it will be seen to have been in the best interest of the Russian people. Another role you held quite recently before your appointment as EU sanctions envoy was as EU ambassador in Washington. And that was during the Trump presidency. Very interesting times there. You know, it's going to be a big year for elections next year in Europe and in America. I mean, how do you assess EU-US relations at the moment? And are you concerned about a possible Trump return? 
Well, the state of current state of transatlantic relations is excellent. Uh, I must say uh, I'm full of admiration for the Biden administration and what they have done in relation to the Russian uh, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. They have built an alliance through a degree of consultation, which we've not often seen from the Americans and the cooperation we have on a daily basis. And I work very closely with my U.S. counterparts in whether in the Department of State or Treasury or the Department of Commerce is really excellent. So I, I think the state of transatlantic relations has, has really been better. Of course, the election next year looms. You never can predict the outcome of an election and a change of president would undoubtedly mean some changes in policy. I don't know how dramatic those changes would be because when I look at Congress, I do observe still a very strong bipartisan support in support of NATO, in support of the transatlantic alliance, and particularly in support of pushing back against Russia's aggression in, in Ukraine. So, you know, there will be some changes, but I think there may also be some degree of consistency of policy. And yet there are some senior Republican figures on Capitol Hill who don't want to give more funding to Ukraine. I mean, that's the reality in the Republican Party. Yes, the Republican Party is not unanimous. That's clear. I still think the majority of the Republican Party is rather on the same line. And I still think there is a strong degree of bipartisanship between the the middle ground of the Republican Party and the Democrats. But yes, there are critical voices and that's democracy. And we will see, you know, what the American people finally decide this time next year. And as I say, there could be some changes if there were to be a new president. But I think one can sometimes overestimate the likelihood of changes and underestimate, you know, the very strong bipartisan support there is for both NATO and for the transatlantic alliance, which is, uh, you know, deeply embedded in the American political system. Because even during your time as ambassador, I can remember I was in Washington myself and there was one trip by then President Juncker uh, with President Trump. And that ended up being a, a success from the EU side, for example, on trade. I mean, there were some bright spots during that time, as well as the kind of negative relationship we remember from that time. Yes, I mean, there were tensions, no point in denying it. We had the, the tariffs on steel and aluminium. We had the threat of tariffs on, on cars, which was then averted. I think I, I was present at that meeting between President Trump and, and President Juncker, and President Juncker, I think, handled the situation remarkably well. And clearly, President Trump actually was quite impressed with President Juncker, and they managed to, to find an accommodation which many people thought would be beyond us. So, yes, it is possible, even in situations where people see to be on completely different political pages, uh, it is possible to find compromise and accommodation. So what's next with the envoy role? I mean, do you have much travel coming up or are you going out to these third countries, those non-EU countries at the moment? What kind of work on the ground is going on? Yeah, I mean, I have visited most of the countries of concern, some of them twice, and I will be going back. I'm going next next week to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan for the second time. Frequently on these trips, I travel with my American or British colleagues, and that's the case next week. This is continuous work, Suzanne. It's not. This is not a job where you can ever say I'm done and I can walk away. It's a constant effort of looking at the, the trade patterns, identifying the anomalies, identifying the potential risk of circumvention and engaging in a dialogue with all of the countries which respects their sovereignty, respects their desire not to be 
aligned with our sanctions, but which calls them out where we see situations where they are being used as platforms for circumvention or where there are trade patterns which are concerning and which they don't want to see any more than we do. And then we find ways of of addressing those. So I will continue to visit these countries to examine the trade flows. We are getting increasingly granular in our analytical capabilities of the trade flows, including identifying companies who are active in these trade flows. We share this information with the member states and with third countries. And I think we will continue our job of trying to minimize the circumvention of sanctions to make it harder for Russia to circumvent, slower for Russia to circumvent, and more expensive for Russia to circumvent. We will probably never completely eliminate circumvention, if we're honest. But if we can make it harder, slower, and more expensive, this is already an achievement. David O'Sullivan, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. And just as a follow-up to my conversation with David O'Sullivan, we could see a decision on the next 12th package of sanctions against Russia, this time including a ban on the import of Russian diamonds in the coming weeks. So stay tuned to politico.eu for that. And finally, just a word for me before we sign off this week. This is, in fact, my final EU Confidential. I'm moving on to a new role within Politico. I'll be authoring a new global playbook, a newsletter that will bring all the news and analysis into your inbox from some of the world's big global gatherings. And that's kicking off next week with the COP28 climate talks in Dubai. Look, I've had a fantastic time hosting EU Confidential and bringing you some great interviews and voices from within the EU bubble and beyond. I'll be leaving you in the capable hands of Sarah Wheaton, who you've heard on the podcast before many times and will be taking over the reins here at EU Confidential from next week. No doubt you'll continue to hear me from time to time on the Politico airwaves. And remember to sign up for our Politico's Global Playbook on our website. The first edition, as I said, drops next week, Thursday, November the 30th. We'll put a link in today's show notes. So before I sign off, I want to say many thanks to Diana Storis, our producer here in Brussels, and McElvoy, our head of audio, and a very special thank you to Christina Gonzalez, our executive producer for audio, who truly has been the real power behind EU Confidential, making it happen each week. Christina, it's been fantastic to work with you. Suzanne, it's really been such a blast getting to travel the world with you and make podcast magic. And Giannis and I just have a few comments from some of our listeners who ranged the globe that wanted to say thank you to you. Dear Suzanne, my name is Monica. Hi, Suzanne. This is David. Hi, Suzanne. My name is Todd Williamson. I'm an avid listener to EU Confidential. It's Agatha, one of your listeners in Brussels. Hi, Suzanne. I really enjoyed the way you interviewed your guests and your choice of topics that informed me very well about what's on the top of the EU agenda. I want to let you know that I'm a huge fan of EU Confidential. You will be very much missed. I've been a regular listener to EU Confidential since the show began. You've been a great host, explaining complicated issues in a clear manner and asking the right questions. Each episode has been not only educational, but informative and insightful. Uh, And you really do uh, bring out the best of the guests and the topics. Many thanks for being a wonderful host of the podcast and for keeping us all up to date about current EU efforts. It would have been much more difficult to follow if it wasn't for you. You'll be missed. 
all best for your next steps and smooth sailing. And thank you so much for bringing the news of the EU and basically bringing Brussels across the pond here uh, to New York. Very, very best of luck. Oh my God, that is fantastic. That's amazing. How did you get that? <laughs> a little for sneaky. Secret. <laughs> sneaky producers can't share their ways. <laughs> that is unbelievable. Do you know what's the best thing about it? Is the different voices, the different accents. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Really nice touch. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure working with you, Suzanne. You're such a great host. And I'm positive we'll see each other again in the studio, hopefully soon. Oh, Diana, thank you so much. So with that... Final sign off for me. I'm Suzanne Lynch signing off from EU Confidential. Thank you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.